congregation for this opportunity to get into your word on this evening. Lord, I pray indeed let revelation knowledge flow freely, uninterrupted and unchecked by any satanic or demonic force. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed speak through my vocal cords and think through my mind. I pray, Lord, none of me and all of you. Lord, speak to us from this evening and for the, for, the, for the word in due season, and we give you praise for it. Thank you for articulation of your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. Again, Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says, death and life is in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. So the word power by continuously indicate to you is this word yod which means death and life is in the hand of the tongue death and life is in the hand of the tongue and so it's important that we uh confess the word of god because you know you'd be amazed how many times in our own lives that you speak negative things people are more acclimated towards speaking negative and, and what they don't realize is that you're speaking against your own life when you speak negatively when we allow our mouths to be governed by the word of God, then we begin to allow ourselves to be in agreement with what God says about us. Death in life is in the power of the tongue. It's in the hand of the tongue, which means that the more I begin to speak the word of God, I am using my tongue to bring in from the supernatural, from the unseen realm, from, from the realm of the spirit, if you will, the things that I want to receive from God giving God authorization to bring in favor in my life, bringing God authorization to bring in protection in my life because I'm speaking life over my life instead of speaking death over my life, which authorizes the enemy to bring in those things that you've been, had been speaking negatively over your life. So many people have no problem talking about the failures or they talk themselves out of doing something before they even try. You say, you want to try this? Well, you know, I'd never be good at this. I can't do that. You haven't even tried. You haven't even made an attempt. But you're beginning to speak negatively over your life before you even make an attempt. And what begins to happen is you begin to talk yourself out of the success perhaps that God wants to even show you that you can't have. Speaking life to your life is something that we therefore must do on purpose. It's not something, it's not a one-time event. It's not something that we do every now and again, but it's something that we need to become proficient at. Having said all of that, on our website and also in the back, we have the wonderful Confessions for Life confessions that are available at all times for anyone to pick up. And they're also available, like I said, online so that we can begin speaking life to our life. The Bible says that the angels literally hearken to the voice of the word of God. So you can need to get this image of your angel is ready to move into operation when you will open your mouth and say what God says about you. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. 
When we begin to speak what he says, then we begin to manifest. Your spirit also grabs hold of that so that it can bring into manifestation those things that you've been speaking where it pertains to life. And so we got to be careful about what we say that we are speaking life to our life. You understand that? Say amen. All right. In the way of our announcements, again, I have made an adjustment. <laughs> Uh, for the sake of our recording as well, I've made an adjustment. Our official church meeting will be, we're going to go ahead with that on uh, October the 9th, which is this coming Saturday at 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll be, uh, it'll be available with Zoom for anyone that wants to get involved in regards to that. The men's fellowship, however, I have pushed back from October into November the 13th. I'm going to make a shift in regards to that. And replace the October 16th date with church work day. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do on October the 16th, which is next Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. We're going to do church work day. Um, we have some things that we want to move around in here, and, and we want to invite people to come and help us with that. Now that the carpet is in place next uh, in the front of the building, so we want to begin to to move things out of storage, move things around in here, see if we can do what we need to do to utilize our fullness of our space. Amen. All right. Let's jump into tonight's teaching. This is my assignment this evening. So we're going to just get right in to basically where we've been leaving off on Sunday. We've been talking about how do we begin to trust the inward witness? How do we begin to trust the inward witness? Because we know for sure that God leads and guides his children. We know for sure that God is not a distant father that's not speaking to us, but in fact, he is speaking to us. And one of the primary ways that he leads us is through our spirit that is renewed, our spirit that has connection with the Holy Spirit. And we've said in the past, and we continue to say, the first area that we've looked at is the area of we. When we're beginning to trust whether or not what we think we've heard, this leading, this this thing that we think God is leading us, us into, the first area that we got to check is this area of our motives. Who receives the glory from this? Who is the one that is leading in me? Is it God? Is it my flesh or is it my ambition? And then we've also said that whatever, number two, Whatever God leads you into, the first, the other thing we got to check is this root of love. That God always leads us from love. He always leads us into operate by love. Love is therefore the key element for any leading that we have from God. He says that love never fails. And then we've also indicated to you as well that number three, we said that we need to check does this leading require faith? Because trusting in God to make it happen is a requirement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anything that God leads you into will require faith. Anything, any area, any place that God leads us into will require that we walk by faith and not by sight. Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible, impossible, impossible to please him. Now, there are a lot of statements in the scripture, but this is such a powerful statement when you just really take the time to think about it. He says, 
Without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to your heavenly father. And the more you begin to meditate on that reality, the more you begin to understand that the reason why it's impossible to please God apart from faith is because it's impossible to walk in a relationship with God that's in a God that you don't trust. I don't trust that he'll do what he said he'll do. I don't trust that he'll really take care of me. I don't really trust him. This was the issue that we saw with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They in the wilderness, God got to the point where he's like, look now. <laughs> now you have seen me move. You've seen me part the Red Sea. You've seen the Egyptians that were chasing you drown in this Red Sea. You've seen me feed you in the wilderness. You've seen me do all these kind of things. And yet when you are up against the wall, you revert back to let's go back to Egypt. And that's the reason why God calls them a hardened. They had a, a hardened heart, a stiff necked people, a stubborn people. Why? Because they had unbelief that was in their midst. Unbelief is something where I believe this more than what God said. And the reason why you begin to see all of the things manifest in, in the book of Exodus and you see in Deuteronomy is because of the fact God saying, listen, I have already shown you enough things in your life that you should be walking by faith by now. You ought to trust me by now. And these people, regardless of what they saw, they always had an inclination to go back to what their comfort zone was, which was Egypt, back into bondage and back into slavery. And it's very easy to go back to what you're used to. I see right now in my own life, there are so many things that are just changing. Everything, every place that I am in is changing. Everything from work to house to everything is just in a flux of change. And one of the things that it becomes, uh, it becomes very attractive to is to stay where you are because you're comfortable there. But the reality of it, the fact is you can't stay where you are. You always, always are changing. The question is not whether or not you're going to change. The question is whether or not you're going to trust the God that's leading you into the change. When things begin to change in your life, when, when things begin to change and advance in your life, when things begin to rearrange in your life, the God that you've been trusting all of these years has already shown you that he's well able to be trusted. That's why he says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him because your faith is established. It must be established in the fact that God is able. That's why we looked at uh, Romans chapter uh, four briefly on Sunday, because that's something that Abraham and Sarah had to get hold of, that God is able Let's look back over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> I'm pulling, so I have the full context here. Hebrews chapter 11, and it says. Let's look really quick at verse number one. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He says, faith is the evidence. 
faith is the evidence of what? The things, the substance of things hoped for is the evidence of the unseen thing. My faith represents that thing that I am believing God for. My faith stands as the evidence of this thing that I can't physically hold or I can't perceive with my natural senses. My faith, therefore, is the X factor in an algebraic equation. It is the unseen thing that represents something that I can't physically get hold of with my senses. That's what my faith is. He says faith is the substance, which means it's real. It's tangible of things hoped for. It is the evidence of the unseen thing. Verse number three, drop down. It says through faith, we understand that the, that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So he says, through faith, we understand our understanding about this natural world that we live in comes about from our faith. He says, we understand that the worlds, this natural world, everything that you see in manifestation. He says, was framed by the word of God. The Bible says in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God said, he said, he said, and then he saw, he said, and he saw. The Bible says in John one and verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word preceded everything that we see in manifestation in the world. Everything that we walk in, that we can touch, that we can touch with our senses came from the unseen realm where God resides. He spoke it. He said, light be and it was. The more we begin to understand this reality, then we begin to understand when he says to walk by faith and not by sight. Then we begin to understand. He says, walk by my word, which is sure and not by what you see, what your senses perceive. Don't even walk by your limited knowledge. Your knowledge, your comprehension of the reality of everything may have its limitations. He said, but my word is sure. And since I'm God and you're not, I'm able to say something and say, you hold on to my promise because I can take you beyond what your physical senses can perceive right now. He says, Walk by faith and not by sight. He says faith is the evidence of that unseen thing that he spoke that you are believing for. If that makes sense, say amen. And then that's how we get to verse number six. He says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe. Believe what? That the word of God is sure. Believe that the faith or the word that you are standing on is the evidence of the thing that you can't see. He says, must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God says, I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. But it's impossible to please God apart from faith. So we've said that it requires that when we believe in God or when we think God is leading us into a certain direction, we got to ask the question whether or not this leading requires our faith, our trust and reliance in God. 
And then we have talked about, and we're continuing to talk about this particular area of whether or not when we believe God is leading us into a certain direction, whether or not this leading will bring life to a circumstance or a situation, whether this leading will bring life to a circumstance or a situation. Now, John chapter 13 and verse 34 says a new commandment I give you, I give unto you. That ye love one another. He says this is a commandment. Jesus is speaking. A new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another. He says that this is not a suggestion. This is just not a passing or fleeting thought. He indicates it is a difference a dictate or a precept, if you will, by which those that are born again should live by, that ye must love one another. He says, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another, indicating to us again that he is the standard of this love and not ourselves. We are not the standard bearers of this love. He says, I am the standard. He says, as you see me love you, this is how you are to operate by love. Verse 35 indicates, it says, by this, all men shall know that you are my disciples. If you have or if ye have love for one another, he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. He says, if you want to see if you are a disciple, he says they ought to be able to look at the love that you have for one another. And they say there's something about those people that they have a genuine love for one another. That is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. The more we begin to understand that, the more we begin to understand, well, that's the reason why the devil loves to split up churches. That's the reason why the devil loves to split up homes. That's the reason why the devil loves for Christians to divorce, because it is to go against this commandment of love. It is to show, no, they say they're born again, but they don't walk in love no more than anybody else. They ain't no different than the rest of us because the devil wants to illustrate to the rest of the world there is no reality of this Christian walk. He says this is a commandment. To walk in love is not a suggestion. And then he says the way that you define love, which is usually self-centered, he says that's not how I define love. He says, your definition of love ain't good enough. He says, walk in love. It is a commandment and do it the way I say to do it. Now, let's look back over, if you will. <clears throat> to Romans chapter 11, 13, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Uh, the King James Version of the Bible Looking at verse number eight, it says, Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. He says, Oh, no man, anything. As I told you before, one of the things we understand is that a lot of people use this as a money verse. In other words, that I'm not I'm supposed to be debt free. Nothing wrong with that. Don't have a problem with that. But contextually, he's not talking about money. He's talking about the fact I am not supposed to be in debt to someone except in one area. 
owe no man nothing, nothing, not a thing except this one thing, which is to love one another. And he says that's a debt, in other words, that you will never pay off. Why is it a debt that you'll never pay off? Because Jesus said this is a new commandment of the new covenant. He says, for he that loveth, loveth another has fulfilled the law. Verse number nine, he says, for this thou shalt, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's the reason why we begin talking about what does it mean to be a neighbor to someone else? That means it's going to require that I am an intentional person. It requires something from me. It requires, and in the parable, and thank God, I, I, as I looked at the recording, I had to make this correction. I, it's in Luke, not John. It's in Luke, not John. I looked at my paper. I looked at my, my notes. And I clearly say, saw Luke, and I said, John. And one of the things that as I was thinking about that, after I watched the recording from last week, was that, you know, that's the reason why we give the scripture so you can check it out. Because, you know, even the best of us can make a mistake. You, gotta, you have to place your faith in what God says and not even the preacher. The preacher can get it wrong. Dear God, we make mistakes. We're human. But the word of God is sure. He says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So in the parable of the good Samaritan, we see exactly that, that he sees a situation whereby he can become a neighbor to someone. So he intentionally deals with an issue that's in front of him. He doesn't walk by and say, well, that's not my problem. That's not my issue. He deals with him as the same as he would himself, that if I was in this situation, I would do something to fix this situation. And that's what Jesus is illustrating in the parable of the Samaritan, that you have to be a person of intentionality to be a good neighbor. You have to be a person that means it's going to cost you in time. It's going to cost you an effort. It's going to cost you in money. He said to be a good neighbor in that illustration, he's saying it's going to cost that you have a genuine relationship with with someone, which means it's not just a one-time hit. So he says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We are attentive to ourselves on a routine and regular basis. It's not just a one-time situation. And so he says, this love that you, that you demonstrate towards yourself should be extended to your neighbors because this is a part of the command that you love one another. He says, all of the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, if I'm walking in love, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to sleep with another man's wife because I love you. I'm not going to kill you if I love you. I'm not going to steal from you if I love you. I'm not going to bear false witness. Well, we said just plain, I'm not going to lie or speak against you if I am a person that's walking in love. I'm not going to covet against you. What does it mean to covet? That means I am desirousome of something that's in your life. Because in my mind, I think that the same God that gave it to you won't give it to me. These are part of the commandments. He says, in any other commandment, so all of those commandments can be fulfilled in this one saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now watch this, verse number 10. 
He says, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. No ill. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, what does the word ill mean? It comes from this Greek word, which means bad. It means harm. It means evil. It means wicked. It means injurious. So he says, love. When I operate in love, I am not working bad towards my neighbor. I am not working harm towards my neighbor. I am not working evil towards my neighbor. When I am walking in love, which again is what? A commandment, not a suggestion. I am not trying to injure my neighbor. You know, it's a shame, you know, in this quote unquote Christian nation, you know, you have Christians that will want to be injured towards someone else. And one of the ways we do so is by the words that we use towards our own brothers and sisters in the Lord. That we use our words to stab people. We use our words to damage people. We use our words for everything and anything except the original intent, which is to lift somebody up and to be a blessing to them. He says, if you're operating in love, once again, which is a commandment, you don't operate this way. Now, the Amplified says that same scripture this way. It says, love does no harm, or I'm sorry, no wrong to a neighbor. It never hurts anyone. Therefore, unselfish love, now we're getting hold of something, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, to be a neighbor to someone, to love my brothers and sisters in the love, it requires that I am not a selfish person. I'm not a selfish person. I'm concerned about God first and the vertical relationship. What are you concerned with? I'm concerned with the things that touch your heart first. And I know and I realize and I recognize that the things that touch your heart is people. So if I really am a person that spends time with God, if I'm really a person that spends time in the presence of God, then I can't just walk by you and see you and me. And it doesn't, in fact, in, in, impact my heart. It touches me. It, it makes me feel some kind of way because I spend so much time with God that my love for God extends to my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it also extends to my neighbors. If you understand that, say amen. Now, let's look over uh, if you will let's look over to uh, back over to Romans Chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and verse number one, Romans chapter 12, and verse number one. Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's important that we should kind of put this in its proper context tonight as well. He says in verse number one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He says that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, notice he says, 
I beseech ye therefore, or you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He doesn't say that God present your bodies. He says that ye present your bodies. The, present, the presentation of your body is on you. A part of presenting your body is the way that you do things as opposed to the way God designed you to do it or his desire for you to do it. So he says, I beseech you, which is I'm begging you, I'm asking you, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present, you give your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy, which is another way of agreeable, acceptable to God. And he says, which is your reasonable service? Why? Because he died for you on the cross. He gave his very life for you. How much more so if you say you really love God, is it for you to give all of yourself to him? And that's why he goes on to say, and do not and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing your mind, a renewing of your mind. He says, because your body, a part of your body is your mind, the way you think, present it to God for transformation so that you are not in the pattern, in the shape of the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is good and acceptable, that you may prove, not God. And I think that's important. The renewing of your mind is, has everything to do with us individually. God knows what God knows. He knows that righteous or the righteous way is the best way. He knows because that's how he created us. So the renewing of my mind is so that I may prove what is good and what is acceptable in the perfect will of God to me. I present my body to God. I present my way of thinking to God so that God can begin to change the way I think so that my behavior begins to change so that therefore that I can begin to see in my own life that doing things God's way is in fact the best way. And then it goes on to say, for I say through the grace given unto you to every man that is among you that ye or that to not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So what is he saying? So he says, listen, present your bodies to God, transform the way you think and understand and realize that everybody in the kingdom is not to have this thinking or this mindset that I am in a better position than somebody else. Everybody comes into the kingdom exactly the same. He says that every man's been dealt the measure of faith. So the measure of faith has everything to do with, with God's given us faith. He's given us the raw material by which to believe what he said. Now, the development of your faith has everything to do with you, not God. The Proving of the acceptable will of God has everything to do with what you do and not God. The presentation of your body, which is also your mind, your will and your emotion, dare I say your soul as well, has everything to do with you and not God. So when God says that we, he's commanding that we walk in love, it has everything to do with us submitting to what he says to do and not what we just naturally want to do, which is in nature selfish and self-centered Jesus says this is a commandment that we love one another which indicates to us that in fact 
most of the time, if you check in online, how many times do you consider somebody else over yourself? Naturally, in our own lives, we are all considering only what's going on in our own lives. I got this going on. I got that going on. So when God begins to lead us from our spirits to minister life to someone, i.e. when God begins to minister to us, that maybe I want you to use this person, use that person, or I want you to go this direction, it has everything to do with being selfless and not being self-centered. Getting yourself out of the center of your life and allowing his directions to become preeminent in your life. So oftentimes, we got stuff going on. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to go here. I got to go there. That we never consider the person that we see maybe at the grocery store. We never consider perhaps the person that we see at the gas station. We never consider the person that we are, that's working for, for us, our coworkers, etc. We never consider. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to walk up to every single person and have a long, drawn conversation with them. Sometimes I have seen situations and circumstances where I'm like, God, what is it that you want me to do? And the simple word that I received, I just wanted to let them come across your path because I want you to pray for them. I want you to take a few moments. You don't know their name, but I do. And I want you to pray for them because I need somebody that will stand in the gap right now for that particular person. Will you be that person? I need somebody that's baptized in the Holy Spirit that knows how to pray in the spirit, pray in tongues. And they don't know, but they know their ministry. They're speaking directly to me for that particular person right now. Can you do that? Right now, there are so many people that are struggling with whether or not they're going to get uh, this vaccination or et cetera. Listen, I, I haven't said anything one way or the other in the pulpit because I haven't been led to. You got to obey God. But one of the things that I have been led to do several times when I hear about folks that haven't received the vaccination is to spend some time praying for them. Spend some time praying for them and not getting to a position in by which we are judging them. Not getting to a position in ourselves where we are moving into an area of self-righteousness. That when even when we pe see people in an area of sin that we don't get in our heads that this couldn't be me. I've gone so far in my spiritual walk that it oh, ain't no way in the world I do that. Can God lead me to minister life to a situation and a circumstance? Am I so self-centered with what's going on in my own life that God can't lead me in a direction in this commandment of love because I'm too concerned about myself and I'm not concerned about somebody else. I'm not concerned about what's going on in their life. I'm not concerned about what's going on in their family. I'm only interested in me and mine and how I get ahead. And God says that person, that Christian that's operating that way is a commandment breaker. Now, we've said 31 ways to be a love one another Christian. I'm not going to go through all 31 tonight. We're just going to kind of review a little bit and then we're going to get ready to move forward. 31 ways to be a love one another Christian. We said the first way is by this area, be devoted one to another with brotherly love. And later on in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. 
He says, be kindly affectionate. The Amplified says, be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection as members of one family. Now, again, if you think about this scripture and you think about it as members of one family, well, that's kind of subjective. I might have come from a good loving family. I might not have. And that's perhaps why Jesus says, as I have loved you. In other words, I'm the standard by, by which you define your love. If you want to see what love is, you can say flip over to First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. That is patient. That is kind. Why does it define it this way? Because. Again, my family might not have been a good family. We might not have been the most loving family. We might not have known what it means to walk in this brotherly affection or this word Philadelphia. So when I hear this, you know, maybe that's the issue. Because once again, my definition of love is based on my determination and not what God says that it is based on his word. So he says that to be a love, a uh, love one another Christian, which there I say ministers life to a situational circumstance. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. You know, when we do this, we begin to operate in this area of giving people a sense of belonging. You know, it should be at church that people feel like they're interconnected into the lives of each other. That I really, 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 really care about what's going on in your life. And it's not this fake, phony facade. To really care about what's going on in someone's life means I'm really invested in you. I'm really so connected to you that I want to see you succeed. I guess that's why I can't be operating in covetousness because my praying for you and when you succeed, I'm happy for you genuinely because I'm invested in you as a genuine brother and sister in the Lord. I'm happy. Man, when you get that promotion, I feel like I got the promotion because I love you. When you got that new house, I'm happy for you. I'm jumping just like it was my house because I love you. I have a serious brotherly affection or fraternal affection for you. And when this is in its proper place, people don't need to seek other stuff. They have a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging grants security and it grants support. The secondary in that same scripture says outdo or give preference to one another in showing honor. Outdo and give preference to one another in showing honor. So he says, be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Now he says in the latter part in the Passion Translation, try to outdo yourself in respect and honor of one another. So that's what my life should look like. I'm doing the best I can to honor you. I'm doing the best I can to esteem you, to give you value. Because God gives you value and because God loves you, how much more so if I say I have a genuine relationship with God, can I not extend the same value he has for you, I should have for you. It's the reason why we have issues when it comes to uh, abortion is because of the fact we value life. That man is made in the image of God. And so that's why we have a problem with when you kill a baby in the womb. But by the same balance, this is also maybe the reason why we have a problem with when people are executed unfairly and unjustly. Because we value life. 
Because intrinsically, God says, you are valuable because I made you. And for the believer, for the Christian, we definitely ought to have value for, our, for one another. Man, God saved you. He saved me. We are in a different kind of fraternity altogether. We're blood bought by the blood of Jesus. You are my brother. You are my sister. I'm connected to you and you have value. And since I know God gave you value, I'm going to extend value and honor to you as well. And so when I'm ministering life to someone, one of the amazing things that, that you'll find that when you spend time in prayer, and particularly when you spend time praying for someone and spending time uh, praying for their family, praying for their situation, that God says, okay, the person that has a heart that's pricked by the things that prick my heart, that's the person that I can allow to speak for me to minister life to a situation because you'll minister my love in a situation and in a circumstance because you will extend honor or you'll value people regardless of whatever state they are in. Number three, we said, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony. Romans chapter 12, later on in verse 16 says, live in harmony at the Amplified. With one another, do not be haughty, conceited, self-important, exclusive, but associate with humble people, those with a realistic self-view. Do not overestimate yourself. Kind of goes back to what he said in verse number three. Everybody's been dealt the measure of faith. Don't think you yourself more highly than you ought to. Have a realistic self-view of yourself, not a conceited self-view of yourself. And as I said to you on Sunday, that's one of the issues that we have in living in harmony with people because a person that is conceited and they're self-centered, it's hard. It's hard to get along with those kind of people. Why? Because it's all about you. All about what's going on in your life. Number four, we said again, <clears throat> to be a one another Christian, do not judge but build up one another. Do not judge, but build up one another. I'll tell you what, let's pick up there on Sunday. Do not judge, but build up one another. We gotta, I got to spend a little time on that on Sunday morning. So let's stop here and we'll pick up there on Sunday. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, I give you praise and I give you glory, Lord, that you are indeed cultivating us to look more like you. I thank you, Lord, that you are dealing with us in this area of love and having a heart for the things that prick your heart. Lord, we just repent of areas of selfishness and self-centeredness. Areas where we've been more consumed about what's going on in our own lives that we have disregarded any leadings or any concern for anybody else. Lord, we just repent from that in the name of Jesus. Lord, we just take the opportunity, Lord, just to open ourselves to you, to your leadings, to your guidance, to give value to people, to lift them up, to be a neighbor to them. Lord, in areas where it costs us in time, it costs us in effort, Lord, we'll make the effort. We'll, we'll give the time. We'll give even the finances where, where you lead us to give, Lord. Lord, when we say we want to be used, Lord, we mean that with all of our hearts. And so we offer ourselves to you so that we can see for ourselves how good it is to just be in obedience, how good it is to be in the center of your will. 
And we thank you, Lord, as we seek you first, that everything else that we need will be added to us. And so, Lord, we just rest in the fact that you are well able to take care of us and we just roll the cares of every issue and every worry on you, Lord. Thanking you that you are able, more than able, to take care of us, our family, our church, in every way. We give you praise and we give you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The most repeated question by Jesus during his ministry was this. Have you never read? Have you never read? Underneath that simple question is a life-altering implication. You should read the Word of God. That's why Jesus also says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knows that there is a spiritual hunger inside of every human heart that can only be satisfied by consuming the words of God. Christian, give yourself to the Word of God. The Word of God is a rock, strong and steady. It doesn't budge, break, or crumble under pressure. It's an anchor in the storm, keeping us calm when everything around us is chaotic. The Word of God is a mirror showing us who we really are. You don't just read the Word of God, it reads you. It's a treasure, beautiful in every dimension and worth every effort of discovery. It brings endless joy and eternal riches to all who find it. It's a fire spreading across the world to bring heat and light. It's a river bringing life and power to everything it touches. The Word of God is a seed planted deep inside of our hearts, producing the fruit of holiness and righteousness. The Word of God is a sword, dividing true and false, right and wrong, good and evil. It's a hammer, crushing what needs to be crushed and breaking what needs to be broken. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to show us our path. So let the voice of God be the first the last and the loudest voice in your ear today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. Give yourself to the Word of God.